This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from One Trust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the One Trust team for their support. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Today we talk with John Warlow, founder of the Value Builder System. We talk about the optimizations companies need to make in order to maximize their value and get the best multiples when they try to sell their business. We discuss LTV and CAC ratios, the importance of onboarding, uh, and how to find strategic buyers, and of course, much more. So, stay tuned. Welcome to Rocketship.fm podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Mike Belsito. And I'm Joelle Goldman. So I guess the last 20 years I've been working with or for and around entrepreneurship, um, started four companies, exited 
And now I'm, I'm knee deep in a new company called The Value Builder System where we work with entrepreneurs to help them improve the value of their company. Um, typical company that starts with us gets a score of 59 out of a possible 100 and we try to take them up to 80 and if they get a score of 80 by the end of the work that we do with them, uh, statistically they go on to sell at a 71% premium over the average scoring business. So there's a system we take business owners through to help drive up the value of their company. So what are these scores based on? Yeah, so we've now done, we've now had 20,000 users and we ask the users of our system, hey, have you received an offer to buy your business? If so, at what multiple of your pre-tax profit? And then we simply do analysis against all the data points and we try to figure out which, uh, which drivers impact the overall score, the, the overall uh, offers that they're getting the most. So we've been able to identify there are these, these eight factors that acquirers look for um, that, that seem to have a disproportionate sort of effect on your value value. And what might some of those be? Well, a big one's recurring revenue. Uh, you know, when a buyer buys a business, they want to know where's the revenue going to come from when the owner, you know, leaves or rides off into the sunset. So the more recurring revenue, whether you, you know, if it's a service business contract revenue, service contract revenue, if it's a software business, obviously a SaaS business model, but you know, where you can really demonstrate to a buyer, this is where the revenue is going to come from in the future. So how might a SaaS company that's obviously already built around a recurring model go from kind of a mediocre score, so to speak, to uh, something that's really lucrative? So, I mean, that's going to come down to your LTV to CAC ratio. For the most part in a SaaS business, what, what investors and acquirers are looking for, if they're going to pursue your existing business model, is what is your the relationship between the lifetime value of a subscriber, um, how much kind of gross profits you make from that you know, that company over time and how much it costs you to win her as a subscriber. And the magic number typically is around three to one. So, so what an investor is going to be looking for is that you can, you can generate at least three times more gross profit from a subscriber than it costs you to win them. And if you, if you're, if you're north of three to one, if you're at four or five, six to one, you'll have a lineup of people looking to invest in your company. So what are some of the ways you might help a company improve that ratio? Well, I mean, when you think about it, your lifetime value is a, it, it, it has two components to it, your lifetime value and your cost of acquiring a customer. When we start on the left side of the equation, the lifetime value uh, or the numerator, I guess, would be the, uh, uh, the way to think about it is, you know, um, lifetime value comes down to how much revenue you get from them uh, and, and how quickly they churn. So when it comes to how much revenue you can get from them, it, it's about, you know, pricing the products appropriately, making sure you've got two or three packages and and making sure um, that you've got good cross-sell initiatives in place so that you're not only, um, you know, selling a product to them, but over time you're building on that relationship. And then the churn is going to be the biggest driver of your lifetime value. So obviously you want to lower churn. The best way you can do that is is choreographing uh, the onboarding experience. So for most uh, SaaS businesses, the the onboarding experience is the defining uh, moment where the lifetime value of the company or the customer is really defined. So if you get that life, that first sort of 30 days of the subscriber relationship done right, um, then, then the lifetime value, the likelihood that they will stay with you for the long term is very, very high. Likewise, if you screw it up, the likelihood they churn, even if you, you know, stand on your head uh, and dance backwards after the first 30 days, the chances they're going to churn are very, very high. And so it really, it's that 30 day period. So, you know, most SaaS companies, 
whether it's Rackspace or, you know, um, you name the, you know, salesforce.com, they're really trying to think through what's the first few days of a customer relationship look like? Do we call them? Do we send them a video? Do we, you know, do we get them on a webinar? Like, how do we do that? I mean, HubSpot is a, has done a lot of work on this area. They used to have a terrible lifetime value, but customer comp- companies used to churn at a very high rate back in 2010, 2011. I think their LTV to CAC ratio was 1.6 to 1. One of the things they did was change their onboarding experience, and they got their LTV to CAC ratio north of three by the next year. And it was principally because people stopped churning so quickly um, because they were doing a better job of onboarding them. Interesting. So if you can really hone in and nail the customer experience and make sure people are really happy, then it sounds like worrying about the cost to acquire them is really secondary. Well, it depends on, on how big a product you sell uh, and the more, you, therefore, you can invest in sales and marketing. I think in principle, your theory is correct. If you can nail the customer experience, in particular, underscore the first 30 days, I think that's going to have a big impact on your lifetime value. But it doesn't actually um, have a huge impact on your cost to acquire a customer. So if, if it costs you, you know, uh, $1,000 to win a customer, yet your lifetime value of that customer is still $2,000 as an example. It doesn't matter how good your customer experience is, um, uh, you're still going to be underwater because you're still at only a two to one LTV to CAC ratio. So what, what you, at the same time as lowering your churn, what you want to focus on is getting more efficient with the way you acquire customers. So reducing the cost uh, uh, to, to acquire customer. And, and all this is done in the context of, of, again, how much you're capturing from the customer. Like take a company like Zuora, which offers um, the kind of a billing platform a lot of SaaS companies use on the back end. Um, Their cost to acquire a company is astronomical. I mean, it takes months, if not years, to convince a big SaaS company to move to to their billing platform on Zora. You know, they probably have very expensive salespeople. They probably have, you know, just tremendous costs. But what they do have going for them is the lifetime value of a Zora subscriber must be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, because it's such a pain in the ass to change your credit card company processor, right? Uh, and it would cause, in and of itself, tremendous churn. And so what Zora has going forward is just a massive lifetime value. So they can afford to invest tons of money into very expensive salespeople, very slick marketing, um, because they know they're going to capture a tremendous amount of lifetime value. We'll be back with more right after a quick word from our sponsor. So what about the flip side of that? If a company sees that the cost, and, and this is you know true of a lot of SaaS companies, or is a, a great example, but the cost to acquire a customer for a subscription business is pretty much across the board going to be higher than just trying to sell someone a one-time thing. And if you can't get your LTV uh, or your churn rate to the point where you get to a good ratio, does it make sense to consider just going to a one-off model where you can actually significantly drop the cost of acquisition and the lifetime value doesn't have to be as high to justify it? Uh, for yeah, example, yeah. like if you have a 10% churn rate, you're basically replacing your entire customer base every year, right? Mm-hmm. So what have you seen companies where you almost advise them to go away from that recurring model um, just because of the economics behind acquiring customers? 
we would typically want them to have some recurring revenue. That doesn't mean they have to be a completely a recurring revenue business or a SaaS business. Um, having recurring revenue gives you a couple of benefits. It, it has tremendous impact on the value of your business. Uh, so for example, moving away from the software space, if you look at security companies, the guys who install keypads and monitor your, your home or your office, those businesses have two forms of revenue. They have the one and done installation revenue and they have the recurring or monitoring revenue. Typical acquirer today will pay 75 cents on every dollar of installation revenue, yet they'll spend $2 for every dollar of recurring revenue. So if you think about it, your recurring revenue in the case of security is almost three times more valuable. So if your goal is to sell your business for a premium one day, um, no, I wouldn't walk away from the recurring revenue model. I think it's, I think it's imperative to getting a, a huge premium on the value of your company. However, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be all in. You could just have some form of recurring revenue, which gives you the Trojan horse effect. So if you look at Amazon as an example, Amazon's not all in on subscriptions, but they do have a huge business in Amazon Prime. And so they know that being a prime subscriber makes you more likely to buy other things from Amazon. And so, they, they, you know, they're not all in, in, it's not subscribe and you get all the, our stuff for free. It's, hey, subscribe to Prime, we'll give you some stuff, including free shipping and free downloads, um, but you still got to buy stuff from us. And it's because you're a Prime subscriber that it changes your behavior. So the average Prime subscriber spends more than $1,500 a year with Amazon. The average, the average non-Prime subscriber spends less than $500 a year. So Amazon has figured out that once you get someone to subscribe to your company, it makes it a truckload easier to cross-sell them other stuff. Interesting, yeah. Uh, and so going back to kind of your whole system of building value in the company, this is this is a piece of it, but I know you spend a lot of time also talking about getting things set up in a way where you don't have to be hands-on all the time, which is a lot of the appeal too of subscription businesses is that you don't have to be face-to-face -face with someone every time they're being charged for something, right? It's, it's an ongoing thing. Um, can you speak to that a little bit and how you help companies um, kind of work more efficiently in that sense? Yeah, for sure. So we, yeah, we call that hub and spoke management. So, uh, it's one of the eight drivers and, and the, you know, the, the more of a hub and spoke manager you are, the, the less valuable your company is going to be. And, and so hub and spoke refers to the old, uh, you know, uh, airline hub and spoke model where the air, you know, they, everybody flies through Chicago or Atlanta, which all works very efficiently until the hub breaks down you get a snowstorm in Chicago and, and the entire airline system gets, gets kind of delayed. And the same is true of businesses where the owner is at the epicenter of every decision, right? So the customers come to the owner for a deal, the suppliers come to the owner to sell something, the employees come to the owner for a vacation day. As long as you are the, the kind of hub in that spoke, hub and spoke model, your business is not going to be worth very much to an acquire because obviously when you take the hub out, the business collapse. So what you want to do in order to really improve the value of your business in the eyes of an acquirer is to demonstrate to them that, hey, you're not a hub and spoke manager, that you've got, uh, for example, systems in place where employees can follow a set of checklists, a template, a guide that they can do their job without it, you know, coming to you for help. Um, you want to automate as much as possible um, because obviously automation takes away the human error factor. So the more you can automate, the better. Um, and, and to, to kind of 
acid test this as to how you're doing against this metric, take a vacation, uh, start for, you know, two or three days and see how your business is perform, your business performs when you're not there, when you're physically out of touch and just see what breaks down. Is it the sales funnel? Is it the development product marketing? And then that's where, you know, you've got to sort of shore up that area of your business and then go back, take a longer vacation and see, um, see what breaks down. And, and over time, you're going to be able to improve your score on this, this hub and spoke metric. And it's a big deal for acquirers. Yeah. And, and, uh, it makes a lot of sense too, and especially if you're not interested in staying on in the company after you sell it. Right. And I mean, an earnout or staying on is, is purgatory, right? Like that's what every entrepreneur wants to avoid. Yet so many acquirers want to use an earnout to buy a company because they think, you know, they don't buy the future uh, of the company and they realize that the company is too dependent on the owner. And so the problem with an earnout is you become an employee. And again, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. And the chances are that you don't like working for someone else. Uh, you probably won't do very well as a manager in a big company. And so you want to do everything you can to avoid leaving all of your sort of uh, windfall from the sale of your company at risk in an earnout because an earnout is typically at risk, meaning it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not guaranteed. And, uh, and so the, the way to avoid a big proportion of your deal being locked up in an earnout and at risk earnout is to, again, make sure you're not being a hub and spoke manager. And that way you can demonstrate to a buyer that, Hey, this business isn't dependent on me personally. You don't need to lock me up into some sort of earnout. Um, the thing's going to run without me. Right. Yeah. And to go back a little bit, we were speaking earlier about trying to find ways to grow and, and to grow LTV. And part of that would be uh, expansion revenue with current customers. Um, but what about figuring out, especially early on, what the most efficient growth platforms are going to be for you? Because there's, I mean, there's, there's almost an infinite number of ways you can go about reaching out to people, everything from building an inbound model to purely outside sales or inside sales. Um, how do you help companies determine where they should really put the pedal to the metal? Well, you know, it, it comes down to your LTV to CAC ratio. And so what you're probably trying to, what you should do is look at cohorts of customers and say, okay, this cohort of our customers, we acquired through outbound telemarketing, as an example. And let's look at the performance of that group of customers over time. And let's measure the LTV to CAC ratio of customers we acquired through the outbound telemarketing channel. And, and then let's also measure the LTV to CAC ratio of customers we acquired through, you name it, inbound, uh, SEO, SEM, uh, our retail stores and start to look at cohorts of customers and see the behavior. What you're looking to do is obviously find the, the, the best, most, the optimal operating metrics. Uh, what you will likely find is that your LTV to CAC ratio uh, is different by channel of acquisition. Uh, so customers who, who came through your website uh, and opted in may be infinitely more or less valuable to you over time than those that came to you through your reseller channel or one of your other channels. So it's complicated and messy and, and frustrating. But what you really want to try to do is set up these kind of cohorts or test cells so you can see the lifetime value of a, of a subscriber um, by channel of acquisition. So what part of this kind of whole life cycle excites you the most um, when you're working with companies? 
Well, I mean, I think it's it's the strategic sale. It's trying to figure out, we have an exercise we take people through, uh, which is called the shortlist builder, which basically enables them to identify who the strategic buyers are for your business, the, the, business, the buyers that have the, the kind of most to gain. Um, you know, when you sell your company there, generally speaking, you got to make a decision. Do you want to sell internally to employees or family member? Do you want to sell it externally? Most people want to sell it externally because you get a better multiple and you get your money up front. When you sell it externally, you've got sort of two choices. One is a financial buyer who's buying your future stream of profits. Uh, private equity companies would, would fill it, fit into that bucket. The second is a strategic buyer who's buying not your future stream of profits, but what your company is worth to them on their platform. And the biggest mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make when they start to think about strategic buyers is they say, well, look at, you know, we make widgets and if Microsoft buys us, we're going to be able to sell a lot of widgets. Or if Apple buys us, we're going to sell a lot of widgets because look at all the retail stores we could be in and look at all the footprint of Microsoft, et cetera. It's, the, it's actually the wrong decision. What Microsoft and Apple and Google and others care about is selling more of their stuff, not more of your stuff. So the, the question you want to be asking yourself and the question we, we take people through in the short builders is okay. You know, let's take Microsoft as an example. How does buying you help them sell more of their stuff? Skype, when it was acquired by Microsoft, for example, uh, was losing money. So a private equity company using their valuation techniques would have largely, you know, valued it worth nothing because it had no profits. And so there was no future stream of profits to buy. Yet Microsoft paid eight and a half billion for Skype. Why? Because for them, they could see how they could sell more of Microsoft product, more, you know, Microsoft Windows, more Office, more Xbox. That's why they paid eight and a half billion for Skype. So don't ask yourself, you know, how, you know, if we get acquired, we could sell more of our widgets. Go out and look at the landscape of potential acquirers and say, okay, if this guy bought us, how can we help him sell more of his stuff? Or if she bought us, how can we help her sell more of her stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Totally logical. And so with the companies that you work with, is there kind of a a minimum size where it makes sense for someone to, to go into this kind of depth? Our, you know, our average user is a, is a business owner with between one and 10 million in annual sales. So they're typically owner-operated companies, um, relatively early stage, where the owner is generally the primary shareholder. They might have some outside investment, maybe an angel investor, but usually they're, they're the one. They've started the business and they've got it up and running. They've got a you know, half dozen employees and they're, and they're trying to figure it out. Um, so that's the majority of our companies. We do have uh, businesses with less than a million using the system, and we have about 3% with, uh, with more than 20 million in annual revenue using our system. But again, most of them would fall in the kind of one to 10 space. And for anybody who would like to get started with you or, or at least learn more uh, about a lot of these optimizations, where can they go? Valuebuilder.com. Great. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Will. Big thanks to our sponsor for this series, Chargebee. Chargebee makes setting up your subscription billing fast and easy. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship and set up your subscription billing the same way Soylent sets up their subscription billing. Get it done right. Get it done the first time so you can move on to building the rest of your business. So that concludes our SaaS series. We are going to be starting growth in just a couple days. We have some amazing interviews lined up, so I know you're not going to want to miss it. It is our most requested topic this year, so we're really excited to get into it. 
subscribe so you don't miss it if you haven't yet. You can also follow us on Twitter at RocketshipFM. Follow me at Michael Saka, Mike Belsito at Belsito, and Joel at Joel Goldman. All right, we'll see you soon.